Um, but I love that imperative last week from the scriptures. Be ongoingly filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, I grew up in a church. It was a great church. I never want to talk down other churches because um, every church has their different flavours and colours. But um, the church I grew up in, it really was a case of, you know, the Father, the Son and the Holy Bible. And um, there wasn't just a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit at that church. Um, And one of the things I love that Jared did last Sunday was even just in the book of Ephesians, he took us through to some of the Holy Spirit passages. Um, you know, and, and the whole of the New Testament is just drenched in the language of the Holy Spirit. Um, this is God's empowering presence, enabling us to live the Christian life. And of course, you know, enabling us to be a community that worships as well, that sings psalms, hymns and spiritual songs to one another. So that's what we've done already this evening. But I've got to say, over the course of the last 20 years, uh, it's been wonderful to grow in the charismatic side of the Christian faith. And it's just, it's just all through the book of Ephesians. All right, we've got a big one today. We are going to enter this amazing but controversial section of Ephesians that is rightfully headed in the NIV, Instructions for Christian Households. It doesn't get much more practical than that, Right? Instruct, they've nailed that. What a, great, what a great introduction. Instructions for Christian households. Now, just before I read this first section on marriage, um, and let me just say, it's so important to talk about marriage in the church. Whether you're married or you're single, you're hoping you may one day, one day be married. Um, it is so great that as, a, as the church, we uphold the institution of marriage. You know, marriage is always coming under attack from our secular society. Um, I like to read the Guardian newspaper, not just because it's free. Um, also get a little bit of left-wing news to counterbalance all my right-wing news. Um, but, but it's been amazing to me that even in the last couple of months, there's been two articles that I've seen that have attempted to undermine marriage. Uh, there was one that just talked about, um, let's just go from serial monogamous relationship to another, and when they don't work, just end it. And then there was another article in the Guardian just the other week where the person was suggesting... Instead of lifelong marriage, why don't we just do three-year rolling contracts? And <laughs> that, that was their person's suggestion to our society, that we get rid of marriage and we just do three... I'm not sure Victoria would renew the three-year contract. So I, I mean, that's a terrible... Thank you. I know you would. Of course you would. So we need to uphold marriage. Now, before we get into this passage, one of the biggest mistakes the church has made... We're starting this section of Ephesians uh, at verse 22. Um, Particularly if the section on wives was read without the parallel section for husbands. But rightfully though, the NIV, the message, you know, when Paul wrote these letters, he didn't write them in, in sections with verses. He just wrote them a letter. And somewhere, I think it was with the King James, they put the paragraph end at the end of verse 21 instead of at the end of 20. So anyhow, they've fixed it up now in the NIV. But it's caused a lot of problems in church history, um, particularly as we go into this section on the household code. So we're now starting at verse 21, rightfully. You will see why that is important in just a section, in just a moment. All right, Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, 
Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does for the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All right. Big passage. What are we going to do with that one? Let's get into it. The Apostle Paul, uh, writing here to the church that he had planted in the city of Ephesus, and he's writing from jail in Rome. He continues this section that instructs Christians on how to live a life worthy of the gospel. In light of the amazing good news that they have received. In light of the gospel story that then reshapes every part of our story. How then should we live? How then should we live? How do we live as single people, as married people, as people in the workplace, as maybe as children of parents or parents of children? How then should we live? How do we live a life worthy of the gospel and the calling that we have received? Good question. So Paul speaks to this in Ephesians 5, 21 to chapter 6, verse 9. And he speaks to it in regards to what is called the household code. What was that? Well, in the ancient world, as today, there was a well-known code of conduct, if you like, for how society should function, particularly around three relationships. Husbands and wives, parents and children, and slaves and masters. And, you know, although, of course, it is a different dynamic and relationship, I think we can kind of understand the passage around slaves and masters around that employee-employer kind of relationship. Um, slavery in the ancient world, it was, a, it was an awful thing, um, but it was different to slavery as we knew it, say, in North America in the 1800s. So slaves in the ancient world could be doctors or lawyers, but it just means that they weren't free. Don't get me wrong, there was also a lot of slaves who were treated awfully. Anyhow, that's what we are going to look at in the next three weeks. Husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. Now, slightly different to today, all three of these relationships were basically conducted under the one roof. Marriage, parenting and work. Uh, Though, to be fair, with COVID, that has brought those three relationships for many of us back under the same roof. And wasn't that a delightful challenge? But in the ancient world, the head of all three sets of relationship was the same person. Can anyone have a wild guess at who that might have been? 
It was the husband, the father, the master. He was the boss over his wife. He was the boss over his children. And he was certainly the boss over his slaves. And in general, the power dynamic was unbalanced, coercive and toxic. You see, since the beginning of time, relationships have begun to become twisted, have they not? Um, Read Genesis. I don't know if you've read Genesis recently. It is a rollicking tale of messed up relationships. Um, it It is a pretty awful account of what goes wrong in the world when sin enters in. And all kinds of relationships get twisted. So with the fall, God's good original intention for relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, and if you like, employers and employees gets distorted. And we see this all the time. Um, You know, we live in, in kind of like paradise here on the northern beaches, right? Like there is so much that is amazing. And yet statistically, this has one of the highest rates of domestic abuse in all of Australia. Okay, there is a hidden dark underbelly to where we live. What happens in people's homes is often incredibly abusive and toxic. Um, it, is, it is a sad reality of the world that we live in. Um, I don't know if you've seen in the newspapers in the last few days, but also even within the church, um, domestic abuse and abuse in general is a prevalent thing. And it's something that we should pay particular attention to, Right. We want to be aware of this and we want to speak to it and we want to help those who are in those situations. But the unholy trio of abusive power, sex and money rears its ugly head as our selfishness and brokenness play itself out often in the cruelest of ways. Now, into the world in which Jesus came, women, children and servants were treated as mere objects to be used. Uh, I'm sure there was exceptions. I'm sure there was ancient men who treated their wives, children and slaves uh, very well. But, and, and of course, especially in Israel, there was a high ethic around how you should treat other people. Because other people are what? They're created in the image of God. It comes from Genesis 1.27. We're told, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That is the basics of all Christian ethics, right? Because everyone is created in the image of God. It means every single person you meet has dignity and worth and the fingerprints of their heavenly father on them. So there's meant to be inherent dignity for humanity created in the image of God, flowing from the foundation and ethics of Israel's creation narrative. But undoubtedly, the ancient world around the time of Jesus was a violent and an abusive place. Aristotle, in his essay, Politics, uh, speaks of household management, of this kind of household code. These three sets of relationships, it was thought by him, needed to work in order for society to function well. You know, the Greeks were very proud of their culture and their society. So Aristotle knew that these relationships had to work. So good so far. But in most first century political visions, the husband, the father and the master was the only one who was viewed as truly human. Right? It's awful. It's awful. Aristotle, who, you know, we uphold in our universities as the founder of Western thought and philosophy, 
Uh, he did not think that women had the same rational capacity as men. You know, this is, this is Aristotle, beloved Aristotle of, of Western philosophy. He wrote, hence by nature, there are various classes for, of rulers. For the free rules the slave, the male, the female, and the man, the child. So it's just the way it was, okay? Some would say it is just the way it still is today. So the Greek man expected his wife to raise his children, manage aspects of the household, but faithfulness was out of the question. Um, there's a, a well-known Greek man around the time of Jesus, and he talks about having a wife for bearing him legitimate children and then having prostitutes to meet his daily needs. And that was just kind of the way society functioned. That was the way the world worked. So the household codes was wives subjugated, that is under dominion or control, to their husbands, children subjugated to their parents, servants subjugated to their masters. Just the way it was, it all flowed in one direction. And then Jesus. <laughs> and then Jesus. Jesus Christ enters the scene. The Word made flesh dwelling amongst us, coming in grace and truth. He tramples over every social boundary with women, with sinners, with outcasts, with children. And the only ethic that the world had ever known that celebrated power and sex and rigid classes is abolished as he comes to seek and save the lost. As he comes to serve and not be served. And so it is in John 15, the most powerful man to ever live says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Let that sink in. And on the cross, he undermines the powers that be, not by fighting them, but by submitting to them, even to death on a cross as a common criminal. And what looks like a lot gets turned into a victory with the resurrection of the Son of God. I was reading an article on how the cross reshaped civilization. Let me say that again. I was, talking, I was reading an article about how the cross reshaped civilization, right? In a, in a Methodist journal this week. You guys wonder what I get up to during the week. Anyhow, the author said, the power of the cross led to a broad transformation of values in which meekness, lowliness and humility were no longer despised, but now celebrated. Yes, celebrated. You see, up until this point in human history, Theology near an anthropology, right? We create gods in our own image. In the city of Ephesus, that was into power and sex and money, lo and behold, the gods of Ephesus were into power and sex and money. And then along comes Jesus. Along comes the cruciform God whom we meet in Christ. One of my favourite passages is in 1 Corinthians, where it talks about the gospel being foolishness to the Greeks and weakness to the Jews. And then it says, but to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom and the power of God. Now that's Christianity 101, right? Because what the world sees as foolishness, what the world sees as weakness, we come around and worship as the power and the wisdom of God. And so slowly but surely, a new dynamic called grace 
enters the world and the kingdom of God advances as his spirit-filled believers follow the way of Jesus. And then we see his kingdom come into the world as believers serve the poor. As believers empty ourselves of power, as we get rid of wealth and we stand on the side of the abused and the oppressed. And in that very way, the mission of Jesus continues into the world. So can you see what's going to happen to the household code of the ancient world? Can you see what's going to happen? The spirit of Jesus Christ begins to fill his people. And so into the Jewish and the Greek and the Roman world, it all gets turned upside down. So it becomes important as, as we explore the dynamics between husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves, that everything is read as exhortations to spirit-filled Christ-following believers whose primary lens is verse 21. Are you with me? Right? This is a word for us inside the church to those who are earnestly desiring to follow the way of Jesus, to be filled with his spirit, and to take on his way of life. So the primary lens for everything we're going to read for this next section in Ephesians is verse 21. To everyone, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the revolution. That's the kicker. That's the new dynamic. That is how we read the rest of this text. Not wives, not just wives submit to husbands, children submit to parents, slaves submit to masters. To everyone, this new ethic begins. A new way of relating to all of us. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Talk about turning the ancient world on its head. Talk about turning our world on its head. So, following out of last week's imperative to be ongoingly filled with the Holy Spirit, a new relational dynamic is now established. Be subject to one another, willingly going in both directions. And why? Because now that you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you have a new relational dynamic. To be filled with the Spirit is to be filled with the life of Jesus. Matthew 20, 28. Jesus says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So it's all getting flipped on its head. You see, without the Spirit at work, what do we do? We fight each other. We control each other. We are selfish with one another. But with the Spirit of Jesus now alive within us, we find a new way of relating to each other, the way that Jesus related to you and to I. So, some quick things on this passage, which may I say, I believe presents the most challenging and yet glorious picture of Christian relationships, particularly in marriage. Uh, And if you are not married as of today, you may well be one day. And my hope for you, my hope for everyone, is that our marriages will indeed mirror the way the relationship between Jesus and his church, right? And we get that kicker in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what we want to experience in our marriage. Come not to be served, but to serve. So five quick things to finish today. Firstly, as we've seen, as we've been noting, it all flows out of verse 21, which is an exhortation to mutual submission in all of our relationships. 
You cannot read the next section without verse 21. So to submit means to willingly yield oneself in the service of another. A concept, as we've seen, that is totally at odds with the ancient world, which says self-love and personal gain are the highest qualities to which we can ascribe to. So marriage, at its very heart, should be a journey of unconditional love, putting the other ahead of ourselves, and if you like, a race to outserve one another. Now imagine that applied just to your daily life, just the cleaning of the house, you know, the cooking of meals, the genuinely stopping to listen to one another, to be attentive to the other person's need and to respond in kindness. That should be enough for us. <laughs> All right, secondly, the notion of a husband's headship over the family, I would suggest, from this passage, is only ever going to have to do with one thing, and that is service. The giving of your own life for the good of the other. And we are shown that Jesus is the example us husbands are to follow. It is a Christ-like willingness to suffer for the good of the family, loving them, it says, like you would love your own body or your own life. Submission can only be understood in that context, right? It is only submitting to a husband who lays down his life for his family. Thirdly, and I find this interesting, the application of mutual submission and service to one another is addressed differently to husbands and wives. I think that gets to the kicker of this passage, right? Men are told to pay particular attention to one part of submission. Women are paid, told to pay particular attention to a different part. The Christian historian and biblical scholar John Dixon's written very well on this. He notes, let me quote him. It's always great to just quote someone else because then, you know, I'll, I'll give you John's email address at the end of the service. If you disagree with me, just email John. So he says, the wife is told simply to submit to her spouse. However, this does not mean that wives are free not to love their husbands any more than it means husbands are free not to submit to their wives. The import of these commands is as follows. While all believers are to express the virtues of love and submission towards one another, husbands in their relationship with their wives are to pay special attention to the attitude of love and service and wives in their relationship with their husbands are to pay special attention to the attitude of submission. John Dixon. (laughs) Now, I'm not going to talk about why wives are told to give special attention to the attitude of submission in a mutually submissive marriage. But I will address the husband bit, because that's the bit I've got experience about, and that's the bit that's addressed to me. Um, I've got a bit of experience in this. Do I want to tell you about the the men's jacket that I bought Victoria for her birthday? (laughs) It was next to a pink jumper, can I just say? I thought I was in the women's section. But one of the things you do learn in marriage counselling is don't justify your own behaviour. Just own it and say you did the wrong thing. All right. Now, naturally, I know for me, what I need to work on in my marriage is on being less selfish and being more loving to Victoria's needs, right? I mean, I'll let Victoria and others speak to the wives' part. But can I just say, 
for the bit that speaks to me, I know Paul is absolutely spot on. Absolutely spot on. Who would have thought? Inspired scripture, understood me in particular. But as I try and live a life worthy of the gospel in my marriage, my challenge is to be less selfish. Right? My challenge is to try and love Victoria in sacrificial ways, verse 35, like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, fourthly, we need to work this out in our relationships with care and wisdom and prayerfully with God. Um, Again, John Dixon, he says, Husband and wives should reflect on this model as they consider together their responsibilities in the marriage. Okay, so do this. If you're married, do this together prayerfully and reflect on the passage and prayerfully think, what's this saying to me? Moreover, it is noteworthy that the submission commands of Ephesians 5 is addressed directly to wives, not to husbands. It says, wives, submit to your husbands. Nowhere do we find husbands ensure that your wives submit to you. (laughs) That's good. That's good. He says, I take it, therefore, that it is not for the husband to work out the application of this command. It is entirely for the wife to hear God's word and then seek to apply it as she sees fit. That's good. Right? Us husbands, we've got our own domain. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is quite enough for me to worry about. Okay? When I've nailed that... (laughs) I'll come and speak to the wives. But you know what I mean? Like there, there is so much there for us individually to take our side of the story and to deal with things. So, so much of the abuse of this passage through history has been where toxic husbands have demanded that their wives submit to their leadership. Okay? That, that, that's been the wrecking ball of church history of using this verse. Where, where men have said to their wives, you need to submit to my leadership. Okay? Making it out as though, you know, they are, are blameless. Um, you know, when, when marriages often fall apart, what we sadly often see is each partner trying to change their spouse, right? Or shifting the blame entirely under them, you know? Like, you get this kind of hero in their own story kind of narrative where they've done nothing wrong and... And this passage just says, deal with your own stuff. Deal with your own stuff. Um, Fundamentally, what the Bible speaks to is you. Start with you. Seek the spirit to change you. Love and serve and submit to one another. Model your marriage on how Christ loved the church. Lay down his life for it. Be willing to make the changes you need to make and that I need to make. And then see what state your marriage is in. Does that make sense? You with me? All right, fifthly and final one today. On to the positive. What an opportunity that we have here to experience marriage and love redeemed to be the way the Creator made it. Marriage is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. There is nothing as good as a healthy Christian marriage. You know, I love taking that wedding yesterday. Tom and Ellie, beautiful young couple here from church. And, you know, legally, I've got to do this thing where I talk about the purpose of marriage. And we talk about marriage. It's the place where trust and security in which true love can grow. And then we say these vows, you know, sickness and in health, richer and poorer. 
And it's kind of our way of saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. I'm, I'm in this. I'm committed to making this work. And then, you know, I love getting to preach at these weddings. And I always talk about love as the circuit breaker. You know, it's so easy to get in downward spirals in marriage where you you take records of wrongs and you get bitter and you you start keeping score of who's done what. And and then Jesus can kind of just come in. And he's the circuit breaker that introduces real forgiveness and love and begins to transform it. And then you can get into a virtuous cycle upwards of serving one another and caring for one another's needs and and, and we, that, that's what we've got to go for. I think one of my tips would be for marriage is surround yourself with people whose marriages you admire and listen loudest to the voices that uphold marriage. You know, find out who are the people who've got a good marriage and go, you and your spouse, go and spend a lot of time with them. Just go learn from them. What do they do well? How do they talk to one another? How do they treat one another in public, behind closed doors? You know, weddings often tell the story of a man named Robert McQuilkin. The thing he always wanted to do was to become the principal of a college. Uh, eventually he did. And then his wife Muriel got Alzheimer's disease. Um, her health degenerated to the point where he couldn't look after her and also still be principal of the college. So at the age of 59, he decided to give up his position. His colleagues couldn't believe it. They said things to him like, she doesn't even recognise you anymore. She doesn't even know who you are. Just keep doing your job. Someone else can look after her. And he said, she might not know who I am, but I know who she is. She's the woman that I made a promise to until death us do part. She is such a delight for me. I don't have to care for her. I get to care for her. That's Christian marriage. 